0: Good morning again, Redeemer. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts 25. This is now the the fourth time that uh, Paul is on trial. The first time, you might remember, was with the Jewish people. The second trial was with the Jewish leaders. The third trial was with uh, Governor Felix. And this morning, uh, we're now uh, Governor Festus. And so just be mindful that uh, that's where we are. And there's a shape. To this chapter, that ought to sound pretty familiar. It's the same old thing. Jews don't like Paul and are bringing false charges against him. There's a a Roman intermediary, some official, who is trying to mediate the peace. And you have Paul, the one who is suffering, who makes a defense. And that's why this stretch of Acts is really intimidating to kind of read on your own or to preach through is because Paul has nothing new to say. And they have nothing new to say. And the, 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 the governor does the same thing. And yet, I, I think um, there's a key to understanding what's happening here. So let's read together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal. And he ordered Paul to be brought. When Paul had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. And Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be there tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, "'To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go.'" Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, "'There is a man left in prison, pr- left prisoner by Felix.' And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him." asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal, and I ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had a certain point of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who were present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you again for the Lord's day. And we thank you, Lord, for this part of worship. You give us your pardon. You sing your scripture over us as it is read. You hear our prayers, but you are not like the gods of this world. You are not silent. You are not impotent. You are not distant. You are near, and you speak, and you speak through your word, and you speak through your servants. Father, your desire is to feed your sheep. They are yours, and it is a privilege to stand before them. King Jesus, I pray that you will speak through your servant, that they might be built up to love you more. May Christ increase, and may all heralds of the good news May we find joy in decreasing. Would you do this this hour? In my own heart, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, um, Luke is a historian. And in this stretch of this book, he is uh, concerned with the historicity of this account. He's paying attention to chronology. And so you might see in... 25 1 he says in three days after festus had arrived in the province he went up from jerusalem uh, to jerusalem from caesarea look at verse 6 he stayed among them no more than eight or ten days verse 6 he the next day he took his seat on the tribunal in other words what what luke is doing is really paying attention to detail he wants us to, to to take note of what's unfolding chronologically But I wanna submit to you that I think the most important chronological marker that's before us this morning actually comes at the end of of chapter 25, and it's an important temporal marker. It's one of the most important verses in this section, and you'll see it right there in in verse 27. Look at chapter 24, verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And so if you draw in your Bibles, then what you should probably do is between chapter 24 and chapter 25, you should probably write two years just so that you can see that two years of time transpire between these chapters. Do you know what can happen in two years? Go look at your credit card receipts. Go look at photos in your phone. If you're like me, like I, I write all in my Bible. I, I date stuff and I write stuff in the margins. And if, you, if I go back two years, what, what was going on in my life? I was seeing a counselor two years ago. I had just taken my son to a New Orleans Pelicans game, and it was full two years ago. Otis and I were on a plane coming from San Antonio two years ago. We had packed our house up and moved into another house two years ago because of flooding. I'm on a plane and my wife and my daughter are saying, Daddy, you, you need to wear a mask. God, I'm not wearing no mask. Ain't nothing, ain't nothing happened about this old virus. Nobody thinking about that, right? It's two years ago. Two years ago, Jackson had 89 homicides. Two years ago, if you're into the stock market, Tesla was $85 a share. Two years ago, if you're into Bitcoin, it was $10,000 a share. What was going on in your life two years ago? I'd imagine that for some, two years have brought about joy. Maybe life was hard and Jesus showed up. Maybe your marriage turned a corner and there was real healing. Maybe you were single and the Lord sent someone. Maybe that wayward child that you stayed up night after night to pray for. Maybe you start to see fruit of life. Maybe you were a non-Christian rebelling against God, walking in darkness. And you're here this morning and you believe in truth and you have bowed the knee to the lamb. Or if you're into the stock market, that same share of Tesla that was $85, it's now $1,000 a share. If you're in the Bitcoin, it was $10,000. It's around $39,000 a share. Things can take a turn for the better in two years. And things can take a turn for the worse in two years. Some of you have lost family members in COVID. Missing church and not practicing gathering with the saints. You can have a pattern of staying away from the body. A skeptic two years ago who continues in unbelief and hostility against God can harden your own heart against the living God. A besetting sin that we toy with and play with. we stay there for two years, we will destroy people and ourselves. A lot can happen in two years. And that's important because I think what Luke wants us to do is to ask this question. And I know y'all like this is so redundant. It is so redundant. They hate Paul. They bring charges. He defends. Some governor intervenes. But, but what if the way to look at Acts 25 is to ask this question? I get it, Jesus. A lot of stuff is the same. But what is different? What's different in Acts 25 that we've not seen in 24 and 23 and 22? What's different? Because I have this sneaking suspicion that what Luke wants us to do is to say Jesus can do a whole lot in two years to advance his kingdom. You give Jesus two years. He'll change your life. And I think that's the way that we're supposed to read. And so here's the question. What's different? I won't be dealing with what's the same in this chapter. What's different in this chapter and what's different in this chapter has to be attributed to Jesus. Who uses time. As a tool to advance his kingdom. Jesus is alive, says Paul. Jesus is on the throne, says Paul. Jesus is not detached from history. He is not detached from you. He is not detached from the things of the world. He is intricately involved, carrying things out so that the end of the picture looks exactly as Jesus intends it to look. That is how powerful, and that is why it's good news that he is alive and not dead. Now, here's the question that I want to ask. Three questions. What happens to the powerful people who were running things in 22, 23, and 24? What happens to them? What happens to the Jews who were in 22, 23, and 24? Is something different about them in this chapter? And what happens to Paul? What has God done in Paul? And two years of waiting in a prison. See, our suspicion is to think that his time in the prison is lost. But I'm here to tell you the Paul that emerges out of those two years of waiting. He's a different person. King Jesus has worked on him, has shaped his heart, has matured him even more. And so the question is, do you believe that in the time of waiting that Jesus Christ can change you? Yes, but we're going to get there. We're going to end on a high note. We're going to ask the question, what happens to the powerful people in 22, 23, 24? That's the first question. Here's the answer, then I'll show you they're gone because King Jesus controls rulers and leaders and the extent of their reign. Now, I'm focusing on two people. The first is Felix. Felix was the man in Acts 23 when Lysias wrote the letter, oh, most excellent Felix, right? In the last chapter, Felix was the one who summoned Paul whenever Felix wanted to talk to Paul. So Paul preaches to Felix about wisdom and about righteousness and about self-control and about faith and about coming judgment. And Felix actually tells Paul, hey, I don't have to listen to you and I don't want to listen to you. You go back to your prison and I'm the governor. I'll summon you when I'm ready to listen to you. And Felix was hoping that over two years, that as he pulled Paul like he was a dog on a leash, you come here when I want to talk and I send you back. He was hoping that, that, that Paul would just, just bribe me, give me some money. And at any moment, I could let you out. And you know what Paul did? Paul gave him nothing. And so for two years, he jerked on Paul, sent him back. Jerked on Paul, sent him back. And then look at the end of chapter 24. When two years had elapsed, God had enough. No, that's not in your Bibles. (laughs) But Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And guess what? Felix is not in Acts 25. He's gone. Now, you can look at this and say, oh, yeah, kings come, kings go. That's just coincidence. Look at look at us. We 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 got term limits on offices. This is just the natural workings of humans. It's not. It, it can be. But if you put on your biblical theological lens and and, and laser focus in on what Mary prays at the beginning of Luke 1, this is what she prays. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in the God of my Savior. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has brought down the Almighty from their thrones, and he has exalted the humble estate. Did you hear what Mary said? When King Jesus comes, he's God's king. And the way God will advance his kingdom is by rising and raising the humble estate. And those kings out there who set themselves against the anointed one of the Lord, King Jesus will humble you. Now, where did Mary get this from? It's from Job 5. The Lord sets on high those who are lowly, and He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Psalm 107 The Lord pours contempt on the princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. He raises the needy out of affliction. Proverbs 21 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, He turns it wherever He wills. Daniel 2 21, The Lord changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Psalm 2, why do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed? He who sits in heaven, he laughs and he holds them in their derision. The Lord says, I have set my king on Zion. Kings of the earth, be warned, O rulers of the earth. You better kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. These are the types of scriptures that Mary is recalling. When kings and rulers stand in the way of Yahweh's expanding kingdom, the Lord himself says, I will remove you. You can't leave my servant in prison for two years, pausing my plan to get him to Rome. You either advance it or you will be removed saith the Lord. What happens to Ananias who was called the high priest over and over and over again? Do you see him in Acts 25? No. Look at verse two, and the chief priest, that's not the same thing as the high priest. The high priest is a singular position occupied by one high priest. In 25, where is Ananias? He's not the high priest anymore. We can date what's happening here around coins in the Roman Empire. We know for pretty certain that Festus became the governor in AD 59. And something else happened around AD 59. The King Agrippa that we read about here, He demoted Ananias. Ananias is not mentioned in Acts 25 because he is no longer the high priest in Jerusalem. It spiraled down for him. He was corrupt. He was killed by his own Jewish revolutionaries who were tired of his bribery. Some scholars say that back in Acts, you remember when Uh, Paul called Ananias a whitewashed tomb and that God was going to strike him down. Remember that? Some scholar says, yes, Paul was wrong and Paul himself repented. But there was also a kernel of truth there that that was prophecy that God himself did strike down the high priest. Now, why? Why is this here? Think about all the dominant people in Acts 24. Ananias gone, Felix gone. Who is standing? Paul, the humble in heart, the one who seeks Yahweh. When the smoke settles and the dust clears, God's servant is there. Now, why is this good news? Because time is serving Jesus's agenda. For the Christian, you need not be overexcited into an idolatrous frenzy with any political leader. God has set his king on his holy hill, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. We should not worship any man into idolatry. Caesar or pastors. The kingdom of God does not have your pastor's name on it. There is one who sits on the throne and his kingdom will endure forever. And we ought not be overly deflated when evil people arise who resist the kingdom of Yahweh. Jesus will remove them in his own time, in his own way. We ought to be able to sleep like babies in their mother's arms, in the midst of all the chaos going on around us. So, Many football experts will say that the best football game ever was a few weeks ago. If you missed Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, duel it out in overtime. That is the Super Bowl, as far as I'm concerned. It's not going to be better than that game. Uh, It's just not. I'm not going to be impressed, right? But Patrick Mahomes' trainer put a, had a heart monitor on him. And what they were trying to do was, to, man, how, do you, how are you down with a minute and 13 seconds left? And you're down, and you score, and you go into overtime, and you score again, and you win the game. They were just hoping that his heart rate would just be all over the place, and then they showed the heart rate monitor. Right when the game was at its highest peak, when there was the most turmoil and most pressure, this butt, this dude's heart rate is even. He has ice in his veins. It's even. <laughs> Do you believe that, Redeemer? That it's chaos going on in this world. Highs and really low lows. And because King Jesus is on the throne. You are steadied because there is a hand that steadies us and is steadying this world. I think this is here to remind us when the smoke settles, those who oppose King Jesus will be no more. And those who bow the knee will be standing. That's the first thing that's different. Time also shows us that human hearts can harden. And we're looking at the Jews. What's happening to them? I think their hearts have hardened. Now, where am I getting this from? Notice verse 1 in, through verse 3. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him asking a favor against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him. Now look, look at that word favor that you see in verse three, go back up to Acts 24:27 that the Jews got a favor from Felix and left Paul in prison. How long was Paul left in prison? For two years. And then a new governor comes to office and he's three days in office. He moves his family into the White House and then he gets on a horse and he drives up to Jerusalem to survey his kingdom. And as soon as he makes it to Jerusalem, they say, hey, you got somebody up there and we want him dead. And I know he's like, bro, can y'all just let me chill out? Let me just be diplomatic. Let me just act like I'm about to do something mighty for you. Let me just go and shake hands and and brush shoulders with people. It's no way that this can be that important that upon meeting me three days into my tenure that you bring up this two-year-old feud. That shows you what has been happening to them for two years. Bitterness. Anger, lack of repentance, so that when this new king steps in office, the first thing they bring up is Paul. And look at verse three. They want a favor. Summon him down here for us. Because we're going to kill him. Haven't y'all seen that before? Isn't that what Paul's nephew overheard? and interrupted so three years two years later they still hate Paul they haven't forgotten about Paul and they want to kill Paul had they heard Jesus' teaching you have heard that it was said that you shall not murder but I say to you if you are angry with your brother and you are offering your gift at the altar And remember, leave your gift, go be reconciled, and then come back because that seed of anger, that seed of bitterness, it will ruin you. And that's what's happening here. They want him dead. So they haven't forgotten about Paul. This is the first thing they think about and they wanna kill him. On top of that, they bring up this, look at what it says in verse seven. When Paul had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, they stood around him. And look at that, that's important. Bringing many and serious charges against him the ones that they could not prove. Well, what was the many? What was the serious nature of the charges? I think they have upped the ante. They're charge stacking because they could not prove the charge that Paul defiled the temple. They could not prove that he, this is some sect. This is not the sect, says Paul. I'm a Pharisee just like you, or at least I was. I believe in Moses. I believe in the prophets. I believe that these things have been fulfilled in the Messiah, so I'm not some crazy dude. I think these Things hinge around Jesus. So they couldn't trap Paul there. So what did they do? They upped the ante. They said, Paul's a threat to Caesar. Caesar comes up nine times in Acts 25. You know how many times it comes up in the entire book of Acts before this? One time. So when Paul starts to say, Your Honor, it's not against the temple. Your Honor, it's, it's not against this, nor am I a threat against Caesar. Paul already sees what they're doing because they can't pin him down here with these. They're going for the gusto. They're just trying to make this guy look like he is a threat, like he is starting a revolution, that he's about to go to, to Rome and overthrow Caesar. And Paul is like, that's not the case. Do you see what's going on? Because they would not listen to the one who spoke the words of eternal life, their hearts have grown dark and it's cold. That long stretches of time where we are unrepentant and rebellious and indifferent and grudge holding and living in the shadows and not walking in the light or the truth, it will take us places that we never thought possible. I'm reading a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghost. And (laughs) you must have read it, right? And uh, there's a chapter on the mammalian, the mammal's brains, right? And how the brain of mammals form. And this, this doctor, right, he, he, he treats in the, the, the homeless and those who are addicted and in Canada. It's a, it seems like, from what I can read, like a pretty holistic approach to uh, trying to serve the least in our society. But he talks about the, the, the mammal brain. And he contrasts like a horse, like in a day and a half, a horse can like walk. You're a mammal. But it takes us a year and a half to walk. And so the human brain, it's smaller, but what what happens to it over the two years after birth, it's exponential in terms of development and and the three core needs of children. It's safety, physical safety, it's nutrition, and it's healthy attachment to a stable and non-anxious adult. He goes so far as to say, as small things like holding our children up to our bosom, putting our hands around them in service, making eye contact pupil to pupil, right? Letting them hear our heartbeat, that 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 something happens in the brain that makes them healthy and whole. And if you cut off the gaze of a non-anxious parent. If you malnourish them, if you don't give them safety, then those are the people who grow up in life whose brains are malformed and are more prone to addiction. Now, when Jesus says, Unless you become like children, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I think a part of what he's saying is this. You and I were made to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You were made to gaze upon him by faith and to see him and to hear him parent you. You were made to behold and look at and listen to and need and depend on your father in heaven. You were made, you were hardwired to need other aunties and uncles and brothers and cousins and sisters in life to mature you and to stabilize you. And here here is what happens when we stiff arm Jesus and the body and go our own way, away from the one who is life, our hearts are malformed and they are darkened and we go to places and we become people who faintly resemble who God made us to be. And so when you see them spurning the gospel and spurning the good news and spurning the messenger of truth, it makes perfect sense that they're becoming beast-like. And this is a warning for all of us. This is why the author of Hebrews Says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's there for all of us. It's there for all of us as Christians to not stiff arm and hold grudges and harbor angerness, harbor anger and harbor bitterness and be slow to forgive, it's a warning. And it's also a warning for those of us who love people who are doing that. It's dark over there. And over two years, our hearts can become really dark. But it's not all bad news. We're going to finish with this last point. What happens to Paul? I think Paul grows in his love, holiness, confidence, and wisdom while he's in prison. There's a different Paul here. And what's your working theology of sanctification for yourself? Do you look in the mirror? And say, Woe is me, I'm a worm, and I'll never change. I'll never find joy. I'll never taste victory. That's exactly what C.S. Lewis says Satan wants you to think when you see the mirror. It is unbiblical and it is wrong. What's your theology of sanctification for other people? Do you think other people can change? that patterns can be disrupted and strongholds torn down and new allegiances formed and love sprouted? Do you believe that people can change? I don't know about you, but I read David and Bathsheba, and then, then I love 1 Kings 1, where David is at the end of his life and a beautiful woman has to lay next to him to keep him warm. And it says, and the king knew her not. What? What about Peter, who denies the Lord Jesus, who separates himself from the Judaizers, right? The Gentiles, when the Judaizers shows up. But at the end of his life, he will not be crucified right side up because he's unworthy. What's your theology of sanctification? Do you think that by abiding in Christ... That Christ is on a project to make you different. And he can do it in prisons, he can do it with freedom. This Paul that surfaces here is holy. Look at what Festus says about him, and this has never happened in a trial not in any trial. Look at verse 18. When his accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case. They brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. So Festus is already saying, hey, their level of anxiety, their level of wanting this guy dead, this monster that they made him to be, that is not what I see when I draw near to this guy. Look at verses 23 and 24. Agrippa and Bernice came and look at the scene. The setting is great pomp, great circumstance, an audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city, even Jews. And then Festus said to the king Agrippa and all who were present before the hearing, the whole Jewish people petition me about this man in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not live. But I have found he had done nothing deserving death. That word for found, it is not a throwaway word. It means he has searched high and low, it means he has seized every opportunity to find something against Paul. And he says, your honor, I have looked high and low. I have seized every opportunity. I have followed every single lead. And there is nothing that comes up on this man. He does not deserve what they're saying about him. This is a different Paul. This is a different Paul than the one who told the high priest, I'm going to strike you on the mouth. God going to strike you. He finds nothing on Paul here. After being in prison for two years, He's going to find something on me. I'm sorry. Right. He's going to do something. He is not going to come out of there. I'm not coming out of there squeaky clean. And he's like, no, this brother, he's holy. He's grown in character and integrity. Look at what comes out of Paul's own mouth in verse 11. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, if then I am wrong, a wrongdoer, and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Paul has never said that on trial. He said it to Christians. Of course, as Christians, ain't finna going to kill you, Paul. He said it to a, a governor. Who can do this or this? I'm not afraid to die. Look, when I bought my first gun, I was 21 was in college and my dad made me go through a gun safety class. You don't need to be having no gun and don't go to no gun safety. You can go go to a class. So I go through this class and the guy tells me, he says, hey, this is not a toy. You never pull this unless you intend to use it. It is serious. For Paul to throw out the word, I'm ready to die. In this context of corrupt judges. That's serious. And what's happened is in these two years, Paul is in a place, you guys, where he says, I do not count my life of anything. I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering. I have courage now and, and always that Christ will be honored in my body by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. And my desire is to depart and to go to be with Christ. But if I stay, then there is fruitful ministry. I'm torn because I really want to go home and see my king and my master. I actually think when Paul says, you kill me if you find anything worth killing me for. I actually think he means it. His confidence in the resurrection is so deep that this is more than courage. This is a readiness at the moment to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. He grows in his devotion, but he grows in his wisdom. Did you notice that Paul is the one who brings up the word Caesar? Nine times, Caesar, 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 Emperor, Emperor, Caesar, and Lord. And it's Paul. It's actually Paul who appeals to Caesar. Nowhere else in Acts does Paul appeal to the emperor. Now, we know because we've read through Acts that that's how he gets there. But if you read Luke chapter by chapter by chapter by chapter, what Paul does in the earlier chapters is use Roman law to not let them condemn him unjustly. But what he does right here when they are trying to condemn him unjustly is there's an epiphany. I got it, Jesus. You told me in Acts 23 to take courage. You're with me. You told me in Acts 23 that I will testify about you in Rome as Jerusalem. And now I see, Jesus, you're going to use my appeal to Caesar to get me to Rome to preach the gospel to Romans. That is wisdom, because here's where I think we need wisdom. If you look at this chapter, what King Jesus says is he's in a tractor And kings who oppose him will get ran over because he is advancing his kingdom. But what you see by the end of this chapter is King Jesus is also driving the tractor and he will say, hey, you king, you get in here with me. And for a season, I'm going to use your kingdom to advance my kingdom. It's not an either or. It's a both and for King Jesus. And so this is why Paul would write in First Timothy as as, as, uh, Scott prayed today. First of all, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet and godly life. This is good and it pleases the Lord who desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. Why would Paul write that? Because of what you see right here. God can pluck kings and rulers down. And God can use kings and rulers to advance his kingdom. That's wisdom. Paul has never appealed to Caesar before. And this is in keeping with the Old Testament, isn't it? What about Darius? Right? What about Artaxerxes, right? What about all these pagan kings who then send Israel back to rebuild and give them military and give them weapons and give them materials? You see the kingdom of the world serving the kingdom of King Jesus. And it takes a wise, mature Christian to see that. Paul is different. His readiness to die, his character and his integrity his wisdom as to how he's getting to Rome, what is it in your life that looks insurmountable right now? What looks unchangeable to you right now? What looks colossal to you right now? The God of Colossians says that you may be filled with his knowledge and wisdom and understanding and you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You can live a life that fully pleases King Jesus. You can bear fruit in every good work. You can with endurance and patience and joy be strengthened with his power. You see what the Bible is saying? You can change and King Jesus can be at work and is at work to make you more like him moment by moment and day by day and year by year. two you give King Jesus two years you will not recognize yourself in the mirror he changes people I'm gonna close with this I love anything renovation anything like cooking like you got you gotta make a, a good dish out of these bad ingredients right or you got this old house that just needs to be restored. Or you got this old car that needs to be brought to its former glory. Or you got this person who, who, who's, whose outfit is just kind of beat and they, and, they, and they go and get this designer who like gives them tailor-made clothes for their particular body type and age. I will stop watching stuff to watch shows like that. Now why? What, what draws us into them? Don't we all want to know that what is rusty and decrepit can be made beautiful? And and it's not going to be a straight line. You're going to go over budget, you might go over time, but we believe that King Jesus is the master carpenter, he's the master mechanic. He's the master contractor. He's the master renovator. He's the master fashion designer who is clothing us with his righteousness day by day. And so that at the end, when the curtain calls, what was ragged has been made beautiful. And it is because the king has done the work. We can change in two years. May the Lord encourage our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you so much for your word. And I pray your blessing upon it. Build your people up. Give us hope and confidence. For those of us, Lord, who are walking away from you, call us back. Put the picture of Luke 15 in front of us. Bring us to our senses. Call us out of our darkness and our destruction back into your marvelous grace and home. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.